gather together this day to share God's love with one another, to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, and to express our thanks for God's beautiful creation. And so now let's read together a hymn from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it'll be on the screen up there. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. May we worship this Christ in spirit and in truth.
seated. Here in just a few minutes, Dr. David Wilhite, theologian, Truett Theological Seminary here on campus, is going to come share with us. But before he does, hear this reading from the creation poem found in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day one. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. God called this vault sky. It was evening. It was morning. Day two. God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered water to sea. God saw that it was good, and God said, "Let Let the land produce vegetation. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, and God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day three. Then God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky 
to separate the day from the night. And let these lights serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And it was so. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day four. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And it was so. Then God blessed them saying, be fruitful and increase in number. And God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day five. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures, livestock, and creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals. And it was so. And again, God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image. In our likeness. So that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea. And the birds in the sky. And for all livestock and wild animals. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and be in charge of it. And it was so. On the sixth day, God saw all that had been made, and it was good. Very good. good. <laughs> good morning. It's great to be with you this morning at chapel. Uh, let me say a quick word about why I'm speaking about Christianity and the environment. I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not an ecologist. But as a Christian, I am interested in this. And I'm going to talk about three myths or misunderstandings that I think some Christians have about the environment. Um, and I want to state that I'm not pointing the finger at anyone when I say these things. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to a Christian private school. I went to a Christian college. And I don't think anyone ever taught me these three things. But somewhere along the way, I just picked them up or assumed them. And I've since uh, come to try to think about them differently. So to introduce this topic, I want to mention a guy named A.J. Jacobs. He is an author and a humor humorist. And he decided he was going to try to live out the Bible literally for one year. And this created a lot of problems for him as he was walking through the streets of New York looking like Elijah or Moses and having to stone people and all the literal things in the Bible that just don't work. And he is Jewish by heritage, but he's an agnostic in his own thinking. And he explains how when it got to the part in the Bible about prayer, he had never really prayed and didn't feel comfortable praying, but he explains that before dinner, Here's what happened. Today, before tasting my lunch of hummus and pita bread, I stand up from my seat at the kitchen table, close my eyes, and say in a hushed tone, I'd like to thank God for the land that he provided so that this food might be grown. Jacob goes on. Technically, that's enough. That fulfills the Bible's commandment. But while in Thanksgiving mode, I decide to spread the gratitude around. I'd like to thank the farmer who grew the chickpeas for the hummus, and the workers who picked the chickpeas, and the trucker who drove them to the store, and the old Italian lady who sold the hummus to me at Zingoni's Deli and told me, lots of love, thank you. At this point, Jacobs admits that he has both gone overboard and his family members have started eating without him. But he explains, quote, the prayers are helpful. They make me feel more connected, more grateful, more grounded, more aware of my place in this complicated hummus cycle. But I want to ask, does the Bible 
And does biblical religion really teach us that we're part of a hummus cycle? You see, isn't Jacob's concerns informed more from his culture and his scientific awareness than from the Bible? Well, I want to contend that stewardship of creation, or in scientific terms, environmentalism, uh, environmental protection, conservation, sustainability, this is essential to our faith. And I think we see these in the three key moments of our faith, creation, incarnation, and culmination. Myth number one. At creation, humans are commanded to exploit natural resources. In Genesis, God commands humans to have dominion of the earth and subdue the earth. In the modern industrial era, this verse has been interpreted as a license to kill, a license to fill, and yes, a license to drill, baby, drill. The earth is an untamed landscape that must be conquered, dominated, and its resources violently extricated from the anarchic flux. But let me point out, it is now widely recognized that this industrialized reading of Genesis is way off the mark. Although the idea of domination and subjugation have a negative connotation today, in the word's original contextual implication in Genesis, it is much more nuanced and is better understood in terms of a household manager or a steward. At home, my wife and I uh, have a nice house, live in the suburbs. We have two children who are six and four. My children are not resources to be exploited. They are gifts to me, and I am their caretaker. In Genesis, God places creation itself in Adam and Eve's household. The animals, the plants, the rivers, the land are all to be cared for by humanity. The founder of this discipline known as ecology, Aldo Leopold uh, says that we are made in God's image. And he says, especially with the help of a shovel and an axe. Because with the shovel and an axe, we can plant a tree and we can cut down a tree. We can give life and we can take it. And he on, goes on to take this image of God language from Genesis and say that we need to take this seriously when it comes to creation. He chronicles cultural history to point out some of our most atrocious mistakes. These mistakes were made when we confused property with community. He points out first that blacks were once seen as property of whites, and it is not until they were recognized as members of the community that they were given full and equal rights. Women were once seen as property of men, and it was not until they were seen as members of the community that they were given full and equal rights. And now, Leopold says, humans must recognize that, the, that nature itself is a part of our community. Notice, God gave no blacks, no women, and not even earth to Adam as property. God's creation itself is in Adam's community, in Adam's household. And we are supposed to take care of the members of our household. Myth number two. Jesus' teaching does not affect our view of the environment. The second event in our faith is the incarnation of Christ. Since Jesus taught a personal, individual salvation that affects one's eternal destination but does little to change one's immediate concerns with economy, society, environment, then Christians have often assumed our religion is solely about the pie and the sky. Literally, many think that as long as we've received our fire insurance, there's no reason to be concerned with life here on earth. But this caricature is yet another gross misreading that stems more from modern individualism than from a close biblicism. At the height of humanity, at the second cosmic event known as the Incarnation, the point when what the Apostle Paul calls the fullness of God was revealed in Christ, 
we are told that God took on flesh. And by flesh, of course, we mean the same flesh as Adam, the dust of this earth. If this earth's dust is good enough for God, it should be cared for by us. But even more, the the mission and the message of Jesus have very much to do with our radical transformation in all aspects of our life. Take Jesus' simple yet profound teaching known as the golden rule. You could probably all say that with me. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One writer, his name is Wendell Berry, and he is an agrarian advocate, an advocate of sustainability. He says we need to paraphrase Jesus' golden rule for today. He paraphrases it to say, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do to you. Few of us would willingly and knowingly dump our rubbish into the river for our neighbors to drink and our environment to swallow. And by the way, when I say rubbish, I'm using Paul's word from Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. You should ask your Christian prof, what's the best translation of that Greek word, skubalon? I promise you it's not rubbish. Well, modern industrialization has distanced most of us from the everyday occurrences and put blinders on us that allow us to sleep at night with both a clean conscience and a dirty ecosystem. Today, Christians are realizing that it's time to wake up and smell the scuba line. It's time to do unto others as Jesus commanded us to do. Myth three, God will destroy this world, and so should we. The third great cosmic event in our faith has yet to occur. The book of Revelation, a book, the last book in our Christian Bible, known to many as the Apocalypse, paints a bleak picture for this world. It is doomed for destruction and destined to go up in flames. Therefore, many a good Christian can throw their beer cans along the side of the highway. After all, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. What's a bit more trash for the incinerator? Like the previous two misrepresentations of our faith, this position is now receiving widespread criticism. Jürgen Moltmann has been one of the most influential Christian theologians of the last century. More than anyone else, Moltmann has focused on the end times, the book of Revelation, what's going to happen at the end of history. And I think it's no coincidence that Moltmann, who is focused on this discussion more than anyone else, is also one of the leading proponents of Christian environmentalism. The two things in serious Christian thinking go hand in hand. It's true. The New Testament does teach a cataclysmic climax to history, but this in no way undoes God's command at creation or Christ's teaching at incarnation. An analogy would be our human bodies. This flesh will inevitably return to dust, but we are still commanded to care for our bodies as a temple of God. So with this earth, this earth will go up in flames and return to ashes, but the fire will be a fire of purification, not annihilation. The ultimate picture of hope and promise is at the end of the book of Revelation when heaven comes down to earth this earth, this same earth, not another one. In Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new, not I make all new things. Just as we care for our bodies, which will one day be turned to ashes, but will also one day be raised and restored, so Christians are called to be caregivers for creation. Even if one day this world will turn to ashes, but we are promised this world will also be healed and perfected. So let me conclude by saying, with hope that until that final event, we will reject these three myths and take up our Christian responsibility. To return to A.J. Jacobs' imagery, let us take our place not just in this great cosmic hummus cycle, let us be responsible stewards of creation.
And I pray we be found faithful to the one who created us, who called us, and who will perfect us. And in the words of our great ancient Christian prayer, to God be the kingdom and the power and the glory, world without end. Amen. Thank you. community is a gathering of believers committed to seeking new ways of living out the gospel in today's world. They worship together on an island off the coast of Scotland and are known worldwide for their beautiful music and prayers expressing their concerns for justice, peace, and wholeness. In a few weeks, one of their members will be here with us. But for now, I want to share with all of you this prayer that they have written. Let us pray. O Christ, your cross speaks both to us and to our world. 
In dying for us, you accepted the pain and hurt of the whole creation. The arms of your cross stretch out across the broken world in reconciliation. You have made peace with us. Help us to make peace with you by sharing in your reconciling work. May we rec recognize your spirit disturbing and challenging us to care for creation and for the poor who most feel the effects of its abuse. O oh Christ, the whole of creation groans, set us free and make us whole. Amen. Now, if you would please stand and sing this final stanza as the benediction.